It's funny. 
ever want to become a man. Yuck! <laughs> I always want to be a little boy to have fun. <laughs> we want to be Brad. Yeah, I'm at my daughter's play. It's impossible. I'm on a plane to London tomorrow night with my family. A children's hospital. A children's hospital is dedicating an entire wing to Granny Wendy. Brad. Peter, yeah. you're missing it. All right. Want a meeting tomorrow, AM? Dad, my game. You promised. It's my son's big game. Last game of the season, Santa series. I gotta be there, I promise. So, we'll make it a short meeting. I'll be there, my word is my bond. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are in the third week of a message series called Faith at Work and School. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we started the series, I said it's kind of a, a re-entry message series because uh, summer's been great, uh, but we've been out of our regular routine and uh, kind of going off and, and doing sorts of other things that are all good and important, and that's fantastic. And then all of a sudden school starts and everyone's back. It's so good to see you. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start a 10 a.m. service. So if this service fills up, we got a service over there. It's going to be fantastic. But the point of the series is to remind ourselves of our mission and vision, who are we? What's God calling us to do? And, and then the core values that we have as a church kind of keep us on track as, as we pursue this mission and vision. Core value number one, it hopes, is Jesus' life. The rest is details. Can we all say that together? Jesus' life. The rest is details. And then that clip we just watched reminds me of core value number four. And that's the one at the bottom here. Read this with me. Following Jesus is a growing experience. Uh, following Jesus is a growing experience. Of course, Peter Pan uh, famously does not want to grow up. And, and I think a lot of us have a little bit of Peter Pan in us. As we get closer and closer to the start of school, uh, my social media feed has been filled with parents taking pictures of their kids at back to school night or meet the teacher night and uh, getting ready for a new school year. And some of the comments that uh, happen along with those posts are things like, man, time is going so fast. My kids are growing up so fast. Why can't time slow down? It's almost like we're wishing for our kids not to grow up. And I understand the sentiment. Uh, last weekend, we were in Omaha helping our daughter Kylie move into her a dorm for her freshman year at Creighton University. Four years ago, we were doing this in Northfield, Minnesota with our oldest, Dalton. Uh, three years ago, it was Hadley. Uh, this year, it's Kylie's turn. Next year, it's going to be Kemble's turn. Our house is going to be empty before we know it. But one of the things that goes through my mind every time we move one of our kids into college is a phrase that my seminary professors would repeat to us over and over and over. I got sick of hearing my seminary professors say, live in the tension. Go ahead and turn to somebody close to you and say, you got to live in the tension. This phrase, living in the tension, was our seminary professor's way of, if our core value says following Jesus is a growing experience, what does that growth kind of look like? And, and what they would teach us, what they would try to instill in us is this idea that we got to learn to live in the tension because there's something about faith that is mysterious. There's a mystery to faith. Now, I don't know about you, I much prefer certainty. When I drop one of my kids off at college, I want to be certain everything's going to be fine. 
I want to be certain they're going to like their classes. I want to be certain that they're going to uh, choose a major, and then they will stay in that major until they graduate, not change it. I want to be sure that upon graduation, they will get a job in the field that they've been studying for the last four or five years or however long it takes. I want to be sure they will meet someone the first day or the first week, and they will be close friends. They won't be lonely when they're at college. I want the certainty that they will never look back and have a regret or a doubt that I made the right decision about my future. That's what I want. I want certainty. So at the end of that move-in day, uh, my wife Wendy and I, we hugged our daughter Kylie. We told her how proud we are of her. Uh, we told her how much we loved her. And then we turned our backs on her and we walked away. <laughs> and I said to Wendy as we were walking down the hall, I'm not going to cry until we get to the car. Uh, I was bawling by the time we got to the car. And then just to, you know, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I turned on this song that Lindsay just sang, The Goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Here's something that I know is true about me. Perhaps it's true about you as well. There are times in my life when it's easy for me to trust the goodness of God. And there are times in my life when it's easy for me to doubt the goodness of God. And sometimes... Sometimes I trust and I doubt in the exact same moment. That's kind of what last weekend was like for me because as we're driving away so sad, uh, leaving our daughter behind at college, we're also super excited for her. And we were excited to get home because waiting for us at home uh, were our two older kids, Dalton and his girlfriend, Ruby, and Hadley and her boyfriend, Miles. We got to take them to the state fair on uh, Sunday, which really means cheese curds for me. The Lord is good to me. I know that college has been really good for Dalton and for Hadley, so why would I question? Why would I doubt? Why would I have uncertainty that it's going to be good for Kylie? I think it's because my seminary professors were right. There's a tension in life, and part of what it means to grow in our faith as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, is to get comfortable living in this mysterious tension. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You remember that story? Mark chapter 9, there's a, a father who comes to Jesus. He has a son who is in need of healing, and he begs Jesus, help us if you can. Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can? Anything's possible for a person who believes. And this is how the father responds to Jesus. And there's something about this response that resonates in my spirit. Uh, maybe it resonates in your spirit. Maybe there are things going on in your life that cause you to be in this kind of a place today. Let's actually read this verse together. Read it out loud with me. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You can feel the tension just in that verse, can't you? Belief and simultaneously unbelief. And part of what it means for us to grow as followers of Jesus is to get more and more comfortable all the time in that kind of a place. Think of the story of the Exodus, the central story of the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Israel have been enslaved by the Egyptians, and God sends Moses as the deliverer, and God promises through Moses, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. But it's a long and winding path to the promised land. And there are lots of times where the people of Israel are trusting in the goodness of God, and there are plenty of times when they are doubting the goodness of God, because they don't have enough because their enemies are surrounding them and, and attacking them, and uh, it's hardship and suffering, and at the same time, there's miraculous provision from God. Forty years later, a lot longer than any of them thought it was ever going to take, 
when they finally make it to the promised land. And you might look at this picture and say, that's Iowa. No, it's not. You see, there's a mountain range back there. Um, <laughs> this is the Jezreel Valley in northern Israel, part of the land that God leads his people to. It's just a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, right? And at, when they finally get settled there, this is the way the writer of the book of Joshua describes it. Let's read this out loud together. Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Now think about that. They're singing of the goodness of God in this moment in Joshua 21, but certainly they remember over the last 40 years there have been a lot of things that have happened that are not good. They're able to sing about the goodness of God in this moment because they remember the promise. Once upon a time, God had made a promise. I'm going to lead you to this land, this promised land. And in this moment, they're aware that God has been faithful. God has kept God's promise. God has been true to God's word. Over the course of our lives, there will be a lot of not-so-good things that happen. And yet God promises us, I have a life for you. I have a future for you. And we can trust the promise of God is going to play out one way or another, somehow, some way, in God's time. But it's difficult for us to trust that or to stay in that place of trusting. And, and part of the reason it's difficult is because we have people in our lives who let us down, who fail us, who break their promises all the time. Uh, in, in this movie, Hook, it's my favorite rendition of the uh, Peter Pan story. Uh, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys do not want to grow up, but the premise of the movie Hook is, what if they do? What if Peter uh, flew, left Neverland, went with Wendy back to London, and then he started living a, a regular life? So uh, Robin Williams plays Peter Pan. He's now a middle-aged man. He's a lawyer, successful wheeler-dealer kind of a guy. But his focus on his job is costing him when it comes to his family. At his daughter's play, but he's on the phone doing business transactions. Uh, he uh, promises to go to his son's baseball game, but when his meeting goes long, he sends someone from the office with a, a video camera to record the game so he can watch it later. And it all kind of comes to a head when they uh, eventually fly uh, to London, and he is angry and frustrated and yelling at his kids, and his uh, wife has to step in and have a stern conversation with him. Take a look. I never should have come here. I should have stayed till the deal was done. You haven't been here for 10 years, though Granny asked you to visit every year. I've been a little busy, Maura. You promised the children some real time here. I and just you got here. What are you talking about? Examine them or yell at them. It's not true. How many more broken promises, Peter? It's Brad, Maura. I gotta take this call. I gotta fix this. No, you gotta fix your family first. You hated the deal. I hated the deal, but I'm sorry you feel so badly about it. Your children love you. They want to play with you. How long do you think that lasts? Soon Jack may not even want you to come to his games. 
We have a few special years with our children when they're the ones that want us around. After that, you're going to be running after them for a bit of attention. So fast, Peter. It's a few years and it's over. And you are not being careful. And you are missing it. Our Bible reading for today comes from James chapter 4. It's kind of this incredible passage filled with a lot of really important ideas around what does it look like to uh, be a disciple of Jesus. And I want us to read together what James writes at the end of verse 8. Read it with me. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And the Greek behind this idea of uh, divided loyalty, the Greek is almost like you're two different people. Depending uh, where you are, depending what you are doing and, and what people you are around, you might uh, behave a certain way. You might be one kind of person in that setting, but in a different setting, when you're around different people, you might behave a completely different way. They might think you're a completely different kind of person. Uh, you're not living out of your integrity. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And I think it's easy when you watch a film like this to see the ways in which uh, Peter's loyalty is divided, but it's difficult for him to see it. And the truth is, in our own lives, it's difficult for us to see it. The people close to us can see it pretty well and often will tell us, and we just deny, 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 deny. But here's Peter. He's trying to be a successful businessman. He's trying to be a successful uh, family man. And he's just making blunder after blunder after blunder. And I wonder if maybe uh, one of the labels that we could put on Peter in this part of the film is simply the word lost. Peter is lost. This is core value number two. Let's read this out loud together. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. And we see this idea in a lot of different places in the scriptures. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is one of them. Uh, Emily preached a sermon on uh, Luke 15 earlier this summer in uh, June. If you want to go back and listen to the podcast or watch it on the YouTube channel, it's real thought-provoking. Uh, that's where the story of the prodigal son is, right? But the, it begins with the religious people upset at Jesus because he's hanging out with sinners. And so Jesus tells three stories about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and then a lost son. Part of what I want to touch on today is as Jesus tells these stories, part of what he highlights is the joy that's connected, the joy that's associated whenever someone or something that is lost gets found. Our daughter Saffron has cochlear implants and they, they make these waterproof cases that you can uh, put the cochlear implant in so that you can still wear them even when you are swimming and Saffron loves to swim. You can probably tell uh, where this story is going to go. Uh, three different times, because we are uh, slow learners, three different times we've lost her implants while she's swimming. Uh, the first time was at Big Creek. We were swimming at Big Creek. Luckily, that water is crystal clear. <laughs> we, we spent almost two hours on our hands and knees, crawling through the dirty water and the sand, hoping we would bump into that cochlear implant. Finally, I said, Wendy, we just got to give up. It's like that deep thought from Jack Handy. If you ever drop your keys in a river of molten lava, just let them go because, man, they're gone. If you ever drop cochlear implants in Big Creek, just let it go because it, it's gone. But 
right when I was ready to say that, Wendy jumped up holding the, law, the implant that we had lost, and there was great rejoicing at Big Creek. A, a couple of summers later, we were swimming in the Atlantic Ocean, and a big wave knocked Saffron over, and uh, her cochlear implant fell into the ocean. What are you going to do? We got on social media. There was a Facebook group for people that lived on that part of the coast, and Wendy just said, hey, uh, we lost our daughter's uh, cochlear implant. I know it's a long shot, but if you find it, message us. Three days later, resurrection. Uh, someone, someone messaged us. They found the implant. They were swimming a mile up the coast from where we were swimming. And we went, we met with them. Uh, it was still in that waterproof case. She put it on and she could hear. It was, the Lord is good to us. Um, last summer, we were at the Lake of the Ozark, swimming uh, by the dock of our, at our buddy's house. And uh, implant fell off. My buddy's this crafty, creative, he know, he's a problems, you know, fix it kind of guy. So he got a steel pipe, ran a ski rope through it, and started combing the bottom of the lake because the implant is a magnet. There's a part that's implanted under the skin, and it connects by magnet to the external piece. So he's hoping that the magnet of the implant would attach, he's like fishing for the implant. After about five minutes, it didn't take long at all, he pulled it up and there it was, dangling on that. I mean, you can't even believe how lucky we are. Uh, anyway, there's great joy when something that is lost gets found. And Jesus says there's great joy when a person whose loyalty is divided between God and the world, when a person is lost and they get found. And Jesus talks about this all over the place. Um, a couple of chapters later, in Luke chapter 14, it's the Zacchaeus story. And at the end of the Zacchaeus story, Jesus makes it as clear as he can possibly make it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, there's a word in our Bible reading in James that's going to be really important. We'll get to it in a little bit, but it's the word humble. Whenever we start talking about lostness, we've we got to have some humility around this because our pride can trip us up. Our pride around lostness can make things ugly uh, in a hurry. So remember, if, if the core value says following Jesus is a growing experience, embedded in that is the idea none of us stop growing. We always have a next step of faith, which means at some level, we all have at least one area, probably multiple areas in our life, where we are still lost. And Jesus is coming for us. He's trying to seek us out and save us, save those areas, those parts of our life where we're still lost. So I'm guessing as soon as I say that there are certain things, behaviors, activities in your life that kind of pop in your head, why don't you just turn to somebody close and you say, here's where I'm, just kidding, don't do it. <laughs> but you do, don't, as soon as I say that, you know exactly what it is in your life where you're lost. And you've been trying to do it differently and you just can't. And you just keep stumbling over the same thing time and time again. You're lost. And so we need to have the humility to recognize Jesus is not creating two categories of people, lost people and found people. He's saying at some level we're all lost and Jesus is coming for us. And it's important not to interpret Jesus as making two categories of people because when we do that, we get to this us-them mentality really quickly and that leads to division. But core value number five says we're one body united in Jesus Christ. And Jesus unites us not by patting us on the back and saying, oh, you people, you, you got found, good for you, you're so much better than those lost people out there. No, Jesus unites us by saying, humbly remember you haven't arrived. You still have some growing up to do. 
And Jesus talks about this all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and sometimes he uses the language of lostness, sometimes he uses other language, like when he calls Matthew in Luke chapter 5, Matthew's a tax collector, and a similar thing happens. The religious establishment is disgusted that Jesus is asking a tax collector to be one of his disciples and going to eat with Matthew. And so they ask Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with such scum? Jesus hears about it. His response is, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. This is not Jesus saying the religious establishment is healthy. They they just called human beings scum. That's not healthy. Jesus is saying everybody has some sickness that Jesus needs to heal. Everybody has areas in their life where they are lost, and Jesus is seeking you out in order to save you, in order to save me, in order to save us. That gets us back to James. James chapter 4, verse 7, uh, and this is our word humble. Humble yourselves before God. We just got to constantly be reminding ourselves our pride trips us up so often. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we don't talk about the devil. We don't talk about Satan very often around here. And part of the reason we don't is because oftentimes we just end up giving the devil way more power than the devil has. Does the devil have power? Sure. Does God have more power? Absolutely. So let's not give the devil more power than the devil has, but at the same time, let's be aware the devil is at work in this world. And a lot of times, as soon as we start talking about the devil or satanic activity, we go to the extremes and we think of, you know, just these diabolical evil things that we hear about happening in the world. And and it does happen in the world, and it happens way too close to home. Uh, the domestic abuse stuff that happens in this community that you hear from our uh, law enforcement people, I mean, it is, it's just awful, evil. So there's too much of that. But also the Bible is really clear that the primary way the devil is at work in our lives says the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. So more than tempting us to do something that's like 180 degrees, complete opposite of, of what God wants for us, Often the way the devil works is if there's a straight and narrow, uh, the way that God wants us to go, the devil tries to get us just a degree off that. Because the devil understands slowly over time that one degree is going to end up getting us far, far away from God and the life God wants for us. I think the way that they portray Captain Hook in this movie Hook is a pretty good illustration of the way the devil disguises himself as an angel of light in our lives. What Hook wants is to get revenge on Peter. So he kidnaps Peter's kids, Maggie and Jack, brings them to Neverland, hoping Peter will follow and they can have this grudge match. But when Peter shows up as this old man who's kind of cowardly and fear-filled, Hook is really disappointed. Like, it's not even going to be a fair fight. He's really bummed out by that. So his, his sidekick, Smee, says, here's the best way to get revenge on Peter Pan. Get his kids to love you more than they love their dad. So I want you to watch this scene, and and as you watch it, just understand there are forces at work in our world, in our lives, trying to get us to believe a story that is not the story God is telling. Take a look. Now pay attention, class. We have a lot to go over. Lesson one, why parents hate their children. Mommy read to us every night. You 
The cute little urchin in the front row. Won't you share your thoughts with the whole class? Yes. I said Mommy reads to us every night because she loves us very much. Loves you? Isn't that the, uh, the L word, Captain? <laughs> oh, yes. No, child. I think your mother reads to you every night in order to stupefy you to sleep. So that she and Daddy could sit down for three measly minutes without you and your mindless, inexhaustible, unstoppable, repetitive, and nagging demands. He took my toy. She hit my bell. I want a potty. I want a cookie. I want to stay up. I want, I want, I want me, 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 me. Mine, 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 mine. Now, now, now. <sighs> Can't you understand, child? They tell you stories to shut you up and conk you out. That's not true, Jack. You're a liar! Lie? Me? <laughs> Never. <laughs> the truth is far too much fun. <laughs> oh, my child, before you were born, your parents would stay up all night together just to see the sunrise. Don't be frightened. Maggie, before you were born, they were happier. They were free. Me flunk the maggot. That's a flogging loop. Come in, come in. Come in. He gave me an F. Jack. Your father went to your sister's school play, did he not? What did he go to your baseball game? How'd you know about that? He missed the most important game on what might have been the most important day of your young life. I want to tear your hook off! Is he? I hate, I hate you, Mr. Hook! <laughs> what did I tell you, Smee? No little children love me! Oh, they do! Come on, depressing thing out Jack, you listen to me! Neverland makes you forget! Never forget, Mommy and Daddy! Think of a way to run home, Jack! Run home! Run home? You are home. <laughs> uh, Maggie wants Jack to run home to resist the devil, to flee from the devil. But Jack is confused. He's got some internal conflict. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. I wonder what it is you want these days. James goes on to say a lot of times uh, what we want isn't actually good for us. It's self-serving. It's not good for the people around us. And God's probably not going to give that to us. But there are other things that we want that we come to, uh, in, to God in prayer requesting. And part of what James is saying uh, throughout this chapter is pay attention uh, be careful because it's possible your strategy or your plan for getting what you want is really what's tripping you up. Your strategy, your plan for getting what you want is not God's best for you. Well, let me see if I can explain. Uh, when our kids were younger, well-meaning people would say to us a lot, <laughs> enjoy it, Scott. Enjoy this season when they're little. 
It's going to fly by. Before you know it, they're going to be uh, going off to college, and then you'll miss when they were little. And I would be bothered often when they said this to me, because I'm like, I'm exhausted. If I was at a, a sermon and, uh, when our kids were little and I heard the preacher say, what do you want these days? I would have said, often, I would have said, I want my kids to grow up and go to college so I can have some Scott time. So I'm not this exhausted zombie all the time. So I'm not driving around three hours a day, getting them to wherever it is that they, they need to go. And, you know, we chuckle a little bit and we listen to the language that Hook is using there and we're like, ah, that's way over the top. But, but if we're honest, there are times, aren't there, parents, when in order to get what we want was just a little peace and quiet. We do things and we say things that damage our relationship, our connection with our kids. And that doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It means you're a human parent. And it also means there's going to be times on a regular basis where we need to reconnect with our kids and do some damage repair. Take the time to repair the relationship and to apologize and to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? If we don't take the time to do this repair work, then the relationship can get so damaged it's like it's on life support. It might even die. This is true when it comes to relationships parent-child. It's true for husband and wife relationships. It's true for friendships. It's true for uh, business relationships. Sometimes in order to get what we want, we end up damaging relational connection. And this kind of gets to where the rubber hits the road in this message. We can't make it through life without being hurt by the people closest to us. And we can't make it through life without hurting the people closest to us. So what do we do? Should we just make a decision as early on in life as possible? I'm just not going to get close to anyone because then they can't hurt me and I can't hurt them. That's not the wisest way to go. Here's the wisdom of James, the brother of Jesus. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. If you want to be close to people in your life, here's the starting place. When you're hurting, when you're not getting what you want, uh, when people are hurting you, when you're hurting others, when you're sick, when you're lost, the Son of Man came to seek and to save you. So many times in our lostness, we develop strategies for life that we think are helping, but they're really hurting. And God loves us too much to allow that to go on, to just stand back and, and watch this happen. God wants us to grow. God wants us to change. God wants us to experience a hope and a joy and a peace and a life that is eluding us. God, God doesn't want us to merely survive, just kind of cope with the realities of life. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, Jesus says in other places. And so there's a tension there, right? God wants to save us so we can experience this fullness of life, but so many times in life we feel empty. And sometimes the pain that we go through in life, it is absolutely brutal. Where's this fullness of life that God has for me in the painful brutality that I'm going through right now? You look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and what it communicates to us is in the middle of these painful, brutal realities, God's coming for us. Jesus is coming for you, and he's going to save you. One more clip from Hook. 
Uh, Peter Pan's son Jack is not getting what he wants, so what's he going to do? Is he going to kill, or is he going to draw near to God? Take a look. Broken clocks. Each one ticked its last talk. And now, all is well. Shh. Just listen. I don't hear anything. <laughs> I know! Good form, exactly! Jack, you see this? Come over here. You can take it. This is Barbecue's very own bedside clock. He was quite an infamous pirate. You see, Jack, I smashed this clock immediately after I gutted him. And his ship made such a pretty bomb for and the waves. You have such a pretty... <laughs> <laughs> jump on my own bed. <laughs> Make time stand still, laddie. You're always making promises. I'm breaking them. You're never doing anything with me. For a father who's never there, Jack. Jack, for a father who didn't save you on the ship. Who wouldn't save us? Who couldn't save you, Jack? Oh, he, he wouldn't. He didn't even try. He was there. We were there, and he wouldn't try. Jack, he will try. And the question will be, when the time comes, do you want to be saved? Well, that's the question, isn't it? When the time comes, do you want to be saved? Scriptures say today is the day of your salvation. Jesus says, I'm coming to seek and to save you in all your lostness. And the question for each of us is when that time comes, when God's saving power is available for us, and it is in this moment, do we really want to be saved? Do we want to go God's way? Do we want to follow his life? Do we want to follow his son? Um, one of my favorite authors died this week. He was 96 years old. Uh, Frederick Beekner is his name. He's a Presbyterian pastor for decades and uh, authored 39 books. In one of the books, he kind of describes how he came to faith in Jesus. Though I was brought up in a family where church played virtually no role at all, through a series of events from childhood on, I was moved for the most part without any inkling of it closer and closer to a feeling for that mystery out of which the church arose in the first place. Until finally, the mystery itself came to have a face for me. And the face it came to have for me 
was the face of Christ. Make no mistake, there is a mystery to faith. But you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all of the answers to all your deep questions. For Frederick Buechner, for me, for hundreds of people in this church, as we say yes to Jesus, as we take, take steps in the direction of Jesus, this mystery takes on the form of a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who extends an invitation to us every day of our lives. Follow me. Come to me. Listen to me. Learn from me. Abide in me.